Uh, Professor Kiesling just pointed out, I'm very fastidious about time. But that's not actually true. Sometimes I'm slow tedious as well. <laughs> so it's 314. Let's go wild and, and start. And sometimes you're just tedious. <laughs> oh. So now we're going to have a lecture, a lecture that will impart knowledge about knowledge. Knowledge about knowledge. How meta. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. Tom gives me the abstract. I love Tom, but he gives me the abstract concepts, which are really hard to discuss, and, uh, but are some of our most important things, I think, to get right. Um, in this case, talking about the knowledge problem is one of my favorite things, and it's actually something that's deeply embedded within my research and policy work. So, um, so I'm, I'm really thrilled that we can talk about it. And, and I think it builds on, um, and, and you can tell how, how some of the, the topics that we're covering and the conversations we're having over these two days, that they intersect with each other and in some ways they build on each other. Um, so I think we'll be able to, to tie together some threads across the different uh, topics. Um, so I want to start with just a framing of what in economics we could generally call the economic way of thinking. And, and so I'm doing this because I want to get my premises on the table so that we all are working from a shared set of premises. So when I think about the economic way of thinking, you know, we in, in economics when we are, are building our frameworks and our models, we start from the cer a certain set of assumptions we assume that um, we, we, economics is a, is a field that is methodologically individualistic, which means that we study the individual as the, is the unit of analysis, the unit of interest, the agent of, of action, and uh, as opposed to, say, sociology, where the unit of action that you study is the group, whatever constitutes a, a particular group. So um, we start with individuals, and we start by uh, positing that they are self-interested in the sense that we discussed yesterday, the Smithian sense of self-interest, as opposed to the narrow, stereotyped, selfish homo economicus. Uh, and so that, that broad concept of self-interest is, is, is what we do. Um, these these self-interested individuals weigh trade-offs, right? So we all we realize that because of scarcity, that we can't have and do everything to satisfy all of our wants, and so therefore we have to make some choices. And if I do this, that means that I can't do that, and so I have to evaluate which one do I think will make me better off. Determined subjectively. Right? Because I'm the one determining what I think will make me better off. Right? So preferences are subjective. Our perception of our well-being, our perception of what in economics we call our utility, is subjective. It's something that we each know about ourselves. And obviously, in a talk titled Knowledge Problem, that's going to be an important part of the story. Uh, we also model individuals as responding to incentives, and we show how changes in the environment in which they find themselves, changes in the institutional framework, changes in prices, changes in incomes, whatever, 
will change people's decisions and change their behavior. And so that's the sense in which people definitely respond to incentives, and we can identify that by looking at changes. Um, we have a particular concept of rationality. And actually, we, it, it, at some level, the concept of rationality we have in economics is somewhat contested. And you can get folks, um, oftentimes outside of economics, who will, will make very sort of strong rationality postulate arguments. Um, but the one that I'm going to put on the table as being consistent with the economic way of thinking that I'm defining is what Vernon Smith calls ecological rationality. And so the way I'm defining ecological rationality is that individuals generally make choices that are reasonable given their context and situation. Right? So notice I've got hedgy words in there. <laughs> and the reason I have hedgy words in there is because I wanna, I wanna, um, I want to engage with but not alienate the behavioral economics that Jeff mentioned. Right? So, you know, I've got the kind of hedgy word generally, right? Which recognizes the fact that we as humans are cognitively constrained, right? There are certain, you know, there are certain limitations to our ability to uh, access and understand the world in which we live, right? And that there is some objective reality out there, but that our ability as individuals to access that and understand it is mediated by our brains, by our, well, by our minds, not our brains, actually. So it's our cognition that's doing a lot of the work. And so we're cognitively constrained. We can't know everything all the time, everywhere, about current, past, and future. Um, again, I'm going to quote Yogi Berra, prediction is hard, especially about the future. And, um, and so, so uh, that's where that generally comes from, that yes, we are cognitively limited, and that's inherent in, in, our, in the human experience. But so given that, we generally make choices knowing full well that we have these cognitive limitations. So we make choices that we think are reasonable given our context, given our situation. And then something may change, and you're like, oh, shouldn't have done that. Right? So, but, but still, at the time, in the context, in the situation, there's that, that idea that, of making reasonable choices. But we are not these mechanistic, homo economicus, blinders on calculating machines. All right, so this is the economic way of thinking landscape that I want to put on the table as kind of you know, defining the, the foundations of economics. Are we all on board with that? OK, good. And given that foundation, that you know, we look at individuals, individuals face trade-offs, they make choices, they make choices that are generally reasonable given their perception of their situation. Um, we then take all of those ideas and we analyze exchange. Right? And so I love this picture. Um, I'm not sure how good it looks back there. Up here, it's, it's kind of woo, overwhelming me. But um, this is a picture from the Alsmeer flower market in the Netherlands. This is the largest wholesale flower market in the world. And yes, flower after flower after flower. So this is a fascinating thing for me. And for me, it's, well, it's fascinating thing, period. For me, comma, it illustrates some of the most important uh, concepts in economics. And here's why. 
the way the Ellesmere Flower Market now works, um, and it's been, it's been around for you know, ages and ages, probably centuries, Lady Deirdre would know better than I, but certainly decades. Um, the way it works now is that flowers that are, are grown, so cut flowers that are grown, are flown in on refrigerated airplanes, flown in to Amsterdam, and taken, trucked the, you know, maybe 10 miles to Alzmere, and displayed, all of the wholesalers then display the flowers. The, uh, the buyers are coming and they will buy the flowers and put them on refrigerated airplanes and send them off to wherever it is they're going to be sold for your Mother's Day bouquet or your Valentine roses, et cetera. And so, so this is, there's something about this that to me speaks to um, some of the same kind of things we talked about with spontaneous order, the idea of uh, complex activity occurring without central coordination, right? Because this, again, it's not like some, someone kind of dictated the situation and said, okay, right, we're gonna have this big market in Altmere, and you over there, you're gonna make flowers, and you're, you're doing lilies, and you're doing, um, hydrangeas and you're doing roses and then we're all going to come together, right? Doesn't work like that at all. This has evolved over, over decades and in fact, um, to, to speak again to Tom's points from last night about trade and comparative advantage, the way the cut flower market works these days is that most of the cut flowers that you buy anywhere, certainly in, in Europe, US, Canada, are grown in either Kenya or Colombia. And you know, serious, serious specialization. And it is, they have such, they're so productive and they have, there's such economies of scale and there's such savings in costs and they're so productive that um, by the time you, you know, grow them and cut them and put them on planes and fly them to Amsterdam, that this is the cheapest, most effective way to get high quality cut flowers. That's pretty cool, right? Even if you, I would argue, even if you had to pay some kind of carbon tax on the uh, jet fuel, but um, uh, entrepreneurs like Richard Branson are coming up with, uh, with non-fossil fuel jet fuels that they're testing right now. So that's my lob back to, to Jeff's comments about, about um, kind of climate change. Um, anyway, this is how the cut flower market works, and it's a brilliant, brilliant example of the fact that there is so much decentralized knowledge in this process, right? You've got the growers in Colombia and Kenya who are, they know I can make a profit growing my flowers and sending them to, to Alzmere. Uh, you have um, the, the wholesalers in Alzmere who are basically, where's Vince? The brokers, right? They're the brokers. Um, and then you've got the, the buyers that are kind of the, the, the next step in the wholesale chain that come there to buy the flowers to bring back to, in my case, the Midwest to sell to the various florists, the retail florists who are gonna make the beautiful bouquets. All right. So there is a lot of very diffuse knowledge in this system, right? At one end, we've got the knowledge of the producers of how to grow the flowers and you've got the knowledge in the middle of the wholesalers of how to kind of set up the supply chain and how they can make money doing it. You've got the, the retail florists 
and they figure out what it is that their customers like. Right? But at every step along the way, they each only know their own part. Right? So that's interesting and kind of curious and super complex. Right? You, you, know, you, couldn't, you couldn't have invented this if you tried, but yet it emerged. So there's the emergent order stuff thing, stuff coming up again. So where I want to take that is the next step, which is a, a phenomenon that I'm going to call the knowledge problem. You don't necessarily have to think of it as a knowledge problem, um, but it just the, the phrase itself invokes the idea that um, markets and this, this process that I just laid out, the process of exchange and the institutional framework in which we engage in exchange and that mediates our exchanges is itself what I would call an epistemic framework. Right, so it's kind of you know a rainy Saturday afternoon, and here we are talking about epistemology. Um, epistemology, if, if um, in case you've forgotten your philosophy class, is the study of knowledge, how we know what we know, what, and and you know what 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 constitutes knowledge, and how do we know what we know. So markets are themselves epistemic frameworks for I would argue for coordinating the use and creation of uh, scarce resources. So, um, so when we're thinking about this, this idea of the knowledge that's embedded in this system, but it's, it's kind of balkanized, right? And different people in different parts of this whole system only know certain things. And they really only know them in, in a fairly vague sense because it's all perceptual, right? It's all your personal perception. Um, and I'll be a little more concrete about that vague notion um, in a second. Uh, and, and I, the way I like to break it down, and I should say I, this comes from a, a chapter I wrote in the Oxford Handbook of Austrian Economics that came out three years ago, maybe. Um, and the way I broke it down was in basically there's two ways you can think about this idea of knowledge and how knowledge is brought to bear and, and the implications of it in markets. And the first way is, is drawing on the stuff we did yesterday, the idea of the complexity knowledge problem, that knowledge is diffuse, it's private, it's personal, it's subjective, and thus it's difficult to aggregate. Right? So every single one of us in this room ha probably has different preferences over um, like your, your pizza and how much pizza you like and what kind of toppings you like and things like that. Um, and it's really, uh, you know, only you know that, right? There are certain things that you, you know, you know your preferences, and if, say, a um, regulator were to come in and try to regulate the market for pizza and say, okay, we're only going to have, like, pepperoni and mushroom, green pepper, and onion and that really awful Hawaiian pizza with ham. <laughs> That's it. Right? Um, so that, this, is, this is the challenge, and this is why knowledge matters, right? Is that if we have that kind of thing where you have some kind of a regulatory intervention or regulatory determination of what the choices are going to be, um, you know, you're not necessarily going to be getting a good reflection of the actual choices that people might actually make if they're able to act on their preferences. And, and, but the challenge is that out in the real world with us as cognitively constrained humans and 
Our preferences are personal, they're subjective, only we know them, and it's hard to communicate them. And in fact, you don't even really know what your preferences are, right? Because I just said pizza, and you probably hadn't been thinking about pizza at all. And in fact, since we've just been eating you know, yummy cakes, pizza is probably the last thing on your mind right now, right? But when you think about pizza, it's going to be in the context of, I'm out, I'm hungry, I'm looking for lunch, here are my options, one of them might be pizza, right? Um, okay, so that's what I, I, is generally called the complexity aspect of knowledge. Um, the other is what's called the contextual knowledge problem, and that is the idea that sometimes we don't even know what we know. We don't even know what we know, or we can't articulate it. When did you ever learn how to go into the store and buy a gallon of milk? I don't know. Just kind of figured it out. Went with my parents. So learning by doing. Um, can you articulate down to the level of maybe the equations how to ride a bike? Probably not. My husband's a physicist. He understands this, but even he can't articulate, you know, really well how to ride a bike. So the idea is that when we engage in the world, when we engage in exchange, when we engage in other social interactions within social systems, that the knowledge that we bring to bear in what we do, not only is it diffuse and private and difficult to aggregate, sometimes we don't even know that we know it. And we're using knowledge that we don't even realize we possess. And that's this idea of contextual knowledge problem. That is really only within certain contexts that we know stuff and that we realize, oh, hey, I do know this stuff. I know how to ride a bike. Um, yeah, so, so those are my two kind of big definitions. And I know we're, we're kind of being super abstract right now. But that's, are we good, clear-ish? OK. Um, uh, a brief dip into history of economic thought on the, the provenance of this idea of you know, the epistemology of markets. And I guess that's what I would say is I prefer to think of this as the epistemology of markets rather than the knowledge problem, even though I love the phrase knowledge problem. It's the name of my blog. Um, <laughs> it's probably if I had an LLC, it would, I may have an LLC soon and it would be the name of my LLC. Um, it's, it's, I think, the, the kind of foundational idea, this idea that markets themselves have these knowledge characteristics. Um, so where does this idea come from? It really comes from uh, a set of debates and conversations and papers that were written in um, the 1920s and 30s centering in Vienna. And this was mostly uh, organized in sort of the, the kind of round table and reading group of Ludwig von Mises, which is why he's in the middle of these, these old black and white pictures of, of economists. Actually, they're not all economists. Alfred Schutz is a sociologist, was a student of Weber's. And so these five folks um, all hung out in Vienna and drank coffee and wrote papers and debated ideas it was this really vibrant, dynamic exchange of ideas. And Mises is going to play an important role in the development of this, this idea of knowledge. Um, not as important as F.A. Hayek, uh, who is the person with whom, if you are at all familiar with what I'm talking about, you would typically associate the idea of the epistemology of markets. It's a very Hayekian idea. Um, the reason Schutz is here is, as uh, he 
he was very informative in developing, in developing some of the kind of underpinnings of, of what I just described and, and important in the interaction here. He, um, uh, in particular, focused a lot on perception and kind of the, the, the idea of, um, in, in kind of the theory of mind of how do we, how do we conceive of our interaction with other people and, and you know, we, we are ourselves as, as individuals distinct from others, right? And so, so there's, he's doing some very, very uh, things that make my head hurt when I try to read it, <laughs> I'll say that. Um, uh, but he's very important uh, here in, in this conversation. The other two folks, and they're both very important, but I'm just gonna mention them. Uh, it, and I gotta make sure that I get the, but, but Deirdre will correct me if I make the pointer go the wrong way. This is Fritz Machlup, right? And he's Fritz Machlup, M-A-C-H-L-U-P. Uh, and he was a student of Mises and came to the U.S. And, and the other thing that's interesting is that, uh, not Schutz, but the other four of these guys ended up in the U.S. You know, obviously if you're in interwar Vienna, um, by the late 1930s, early 1940s, you are getting out of Dodge. And especially Mises, because he's got a Jewish heritage, uh, he got out, out of Dodge in a very harrowing uh, way um, that involved a, a very harrowing mountainous bus journey. Um, <laughs> Hayek went first to the London School of Economics and then the University of Chicago. But um, Machlup uh, was a... Um, a, a professor and, and basically worked in what I would call these days strategic management and, um, and applied a lot of the, the ideas of the kind of epistemology of markets ideas to firms and businesses and their interactions in markets. And um, this guy is really interesting to me. His name is Oscar Morgenstern. And so if any of you are mathematicians or game theorists uh, or computer scientists, uh, and some of you are smiling at me, so I know you know who this guy is. Uh, Oscar Morgenstern was very deeply involved in this epistemology of markets ideas, and then he went and worked with John von Neumann, who's a mathematician, and uh, had you know brilliant ideas that turned into game theory and our formal ways of being able to understand strategic interactions. And bless his soul, John von Neumann was a genius but he could, not, he could not very effectively communicate his ideas to normal human beings. <laughs> this is a common phenomenon, right? And, and so he and Morgenstern collaborated, and Morgenstern basically worked with him to take his brilliant ideas, pair them up with Morgenstern's own brilliant ideas, and they wrote what is to this day the seminal work in game theory. And it is something that economists and mathematicians and people in industrial or in, in international relations have been using for the past 60 years. Um, so, so this is a, an idea with very deep and, and important pedigree. Um, the, the place I want to go in to, to just not, not belabor the point, but is to, to highlight an example of how this idea developed. And this is a, an episode in, in economic thought called the Socialist Calculation Debate. So um, this is Mises and Hayek 
uh, in the, the kind of late 1920s into the 1930s, uh, interacting in written engagement, so you know, journal articles, back and forth, with um, the uh, Polish economist Oskar Lange and Abba Lerner, who, Deirdre Abba Lerner was Swedish, right? Polish, also Polish, so both Polish. Um, yeah, for some reason, I, I always think one of them is Swedish. Um, so Mises and Hayek are engaged in this debate with uh, Lerner and Lange, and here's the, the guts of the argument, right? In, in the 1880s and 1890s, in um, economics, we developed a mathematical theoretical framework from the work of Leon Walras that basically showed how you could use a, you know, a system of simultaneous equations mathematical model to model an economy and how it gets to equilibrium. And uh, Lange and Lerner basically said, see, look, we can model this, and because we can model this, we can take this concept and we can implement it using central planning. All we have to do is run the model, throw, put some data in, run the model, figure out what the prices should be, and then implement the prices centrally. <laughs> Jordan's back there shaking his head. He's like, yeah, no. <laughs> and so that was their argument. And, and so as you can imagine, there was quite a, and I would say it was a very civil, very good analytical um, argument and discussion and Mises and Hayek came back at them with two different and complementary reposts. So Mises comes back and basically makes the calculation argument. And he says that if you think about it that way, you're thinking about it backwards. That you have to have prices, you have to have a system by which prices can emerge in order for calculation to be done in an economy. And that uh, Lerner and Lange were, were thinking about it backwards. And, um, and so that is Mises' particular argument on it. And so he says that this calculation to plan general equilibrium is impossible because you're, you know, any, any vector of prices that you pick are not necessarily going to be right. And so you're going to get distortions and inefficiencies based on the prices that you implement centrally. And, and so the idea is that aggregating the, the diffuse private knowledge that rests in all of us requires prices that can adjust, requires this complex adaptive system that we talked about yesterday. So then Hayek comes in and he says, you know, okay, yeah, Mises, what he said, but also it's not just that you can't calculate the prices correctly centrally. It's that you cannot determine the right prices because knowledge is such a fundamental part of where prices come from. And knowledge is this, is this um, phenomenon that is so diffuse and is so wrapped up in our cognition and that it, you, you just can't, um, you cannot determine prices outside of some institutional framework that will aggregate all of that diffuse private knowledge across everyone. Right. And so he argues that, that the fundamental, and this is from the use of knowledge in society, 
um, which I've probably recommended on the reading list in both of my previous talks, uh, <laughs> that um, the fundamental economic problem is the dynamic coordination, right? And, and that what prices do is allow for the dynamic coordination of the actions and plans of people in the economy. And uh, as opposed to the static allocation of scarce resources to unlimited wants, which to this day, if you read standard principles of microeconomics book, when you're taking your first econ class, that's what it says. It's economics is the study of the allocation of scarce resources across <laughs> unlimited wants. You're like, okay, yeah, that's fine in a snapshot sense. But in a dynamic sense, what we care about in a, in a dynamic economy is the coordination of the actions and plans of all of these people who have diffuse private knowledge, have their own life projects, and what kind of consumption decisions are they gonna make, production decisions, investment decisions, innovation decisions, right? There's a lot of coordination there that has to happen, and you can't make those decisions well unless you have some means of aggregating knowledge across all of these people. And that's why you need institutions that emerge to enable this decentralized coordination. So specifically, if we pull some quotes from, from Use of Knowledge in Society, Hayek is saying that um, you know, taking, us, taking us as we are in, in our cognitive reality, we're not omniscient, we don't have perfect foresight, but we still have to coordinate our actions and plans in order to survive and to thrive. And, and so one particular quote that I think illustrates it well is when he says, the knowledge of the circumstances of which we must make use never exists in concentrated or integrated form. So this, this idea of knowledge can be a little slippery, right? And so for him, the, you know, the idea of knowledge is the knowledge of the circumstances in which individuals find themselves and the decisions that they are gonna make. It's that very, very local, personal knowledge of their own context, their own experience, their own circumstance. Um, and that never exists in concentrated form, but solely as the dispersed bits of incomplete and frequently contradictory knowledge, which all the separate individuals possess. So that is, for me, the, that's the, the kind of money quote in terms of articulating the knowledge problem. And he defines this, this man on the spot, which these days I would degender to say the person on the spot, has subjective private knowledge of the particular circumstances of time and place. So if you want to really think about this idea, that's the idea that you should, if you want a big takeaway from this, that's the idea you should bear in mind. That the knowledge problem is the idea that individuals' knowledge of their circumstances and knowledge of their own time and place is deeply personal and it's subjective and it's based on perception. And um, that knowledge is, is enormously decision relevant to the individual and the people the individual interacts with, but it is not available to anyone else. It is not available to anyone else. It's certainly not available to that central planner who's trying to come in and come up with a price vector. And so that's, this is the knowledge problem. How do we coordinate our actions and plans given that each one of us has this diffuse private knowledge and only we know that our, our circumstances and the, our knowledge of time and place. So how do we coordinate when there's diffuse private knowledge? Give you a clue, the answer is prices. Shocking, I know. <laughs> or more generally, we come up with institutions to facilitate decentralized coordination. And I really like, uh, my friend Steve Horwitz came up with a phrase that I like a lot. 
that is the idea that prices and profits while we're at it, which are also a signal, prices are knowledge surrogates, right? So when you go to the store, or you're out getting lunch, and you go and you decide that you want to buy the pepperoni, green pepper and onion pizza, and that you're willing to pay $4.99 for a slice of it, that's cheap pizza, but good. Um, the, you know, when you make that transaction, you are communicating some piece of your knowledge of your own circumstances of time and place. What are you communicating? You are communicating, I am willing to pay $4.99 for a piece of pepperoni, green onion, and, and green pepper and onion pizza at this moment in time in this place. Doesn't sound like much, right? And it's not. You know, it's not like you're communicating your entire preference ordering. You know, that I'm willing to pay $4.99 for one slice, I'm willing to pay $3.99 for my second slice. You know, it's diminishing marginal utility. It's not like you're doing that. You're just basically communicating one piece of your diffuse private knowledge. And that's why it's a knowledge surrogate. Or similarly, if you walk up and, and you look at the pizza and you're like, oh, I'm not willing to pay that, right? I'm not that hungry. I don't like the pepperoni, green pepper, and onion combo, whatever. I'm not willing to pay $4.99 for that. So you look at it and you walk away. That itself, that action of saying no, is also communicating something about, about your, your knowledge, about your preferences. And so that's the sense in which prices communicate our, and aggregate our diffuse private knowledge. And, and this idea has become embedded, I would say, in, in mainstream economics. And the way we usually talk about it is, when we talk to our students, is the idea that, price, that prices are, are signals. And in fact, the, the book that I used to use when I taught principles would say, a price is a signal wrapped in an incentive. Right? So prices um, will give you some incentive to engage in some behavior, make some choice. And uh, the choice you make in response to that price communicates a signal to others in the market. And the best way of illustrating this, and some, at some point I'm gonna get Tom to give me an extra hour so we can do this, is to do an, uh, an experiment called a double auction. And in a double auction, what you have is you create a market. And so half the room are buyers and half the room are sellers. And the buyers know their values and the sellers know their costs. And some of you have probably done these as students. And then you have a, you know, a market institution and a yeah, double auction, basically what happens is the buyers hold up cards to submit bids, sellers submit offers, and it's all very vocal. And so everyone can see all of the bids and asks that are on the table. And, um, and so that's a great way to illustrate this point that you know, at some point, if the price of something, of the price of the good is getting bid up really, really high, and you look at your preferences and you're like, oh, I'm not willing to pay that, what does that mean? You're learning something about the fact that there are other people in the market who value the good more highly than you do. And so that's an example of how this, this is a, uh, in, as an epistemic system, this is a institution that enables learning. And prices are signals that enable you to learn stuff. Okay, let's have a couple more concrete examples because this is super abstract. Um, this map is actually in color. I mean, there's, there's lots of different colors on here, but the, the colors don't really, are, are, are secondary. Um, two examples that I wanna offer you to make this a little more concrete. Um, the first is, 
airline deregulation. Right? So pre 19 so this is a pre and post nineteen seventy eight case study. Pre nineteen seventy eight, the Civil Aeronautics Board, the CAB, uh, regulated the number of flights and I think also the prices that airlines could charge for those flights within the U.S. Any flights that crossed state lines, right? So it was an interstate commerce thing, federal jurisdiction, and. Um, in that under airline deregulation or under under airline regulation with the CAB in the you know 60s and 70s, um, you would have phenomena like um, you know 727 jets being flown from say Denver to Salt Lake City with 10 people on them because the prices were high. Um, and the airlines were, you know, they were they were basically, you know, earning earning higher, you know, they were charging higher prices, earning revenue enough that they were willing to fly ten people from Denver to Salt Lake City on a 727. So, in other words, tons of excess capacity, lots of empty seats. Um, fast forward through, and 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 you also had a lot of point to point. Um, you know, so it would be more like, you know, Denver to Cheyenne, Wyoming in a 727 with 10 people on it, well, maybe four people on it, right? So lots more of that point-to-point -point stuff, right? 1978, Fred Kahn, who is one of my heroes, he's an economist at Cornell who was uh, working as the um, director of the Civil Aeronautics Board at the time. He and his staff agreed to abolish the CAB, stop doing federal regulation of airlines. Um, basically, they turn out the lights, close the door, lime the soil on the way out. The CAB has never been resurrected. Yay! Um, that brought on a lot of changes in the airline industry. And any of you who are kind of my age or older, you remember this, right? People's Express. Oh man, we were living in Columbus, Ohio at the time, and my mom was so excited about getting cheap flights to New York so that she could go to the theater and go shopping, and very exciting. Um, and we did that a few times, it was great. Uh, and so you get more um, you know, competition, prices fall, capacity utilization goes up, i.e. more butts and seats on planes. And so you don't have any more of this kind of, you know, Denver to Cheyenne with four people on the plane. You get more, you know, Columbus to New York with every seat full because everyone is, you know, all excited. I get to fly. This is great. And before that, flying had been quite a luxury. The other phenomenon, the, the, the one that, that I think I want to harness for this knowledge problem discussion is this map. Because what do we know that we have, that we didn't have pre-1978 in terms of these routes, right? Look at Denver, Salt Lake. This is, a, um, this is actually one of my favorite airlines, SkyWest. You know, you may you know, like Sky who? SkyWest is, um, is an independent airline that, that operates small uh, regional jet flights for American and Delta and United. Um, this is obviously pre-merger, but um, you know, look at Chicago, Minneapolis, Salt Lake, um, Denver. We have hubs, 
And so one of the things that nobody anticipated, no regulator anticipated, because the way the regulators were doing the routes before was just these sort of point to points, right? One of the things that, um, that competition and markets and prices and profits revealed was that firms could do a better job of meeting the interests of customers, i.e. selling more tickets and getting more butts in seats and making more money doing it, by having hubs and having a lot of flights that would go hub to hub and then having spoke routes out of the hubs. And so that's why now, um, you know, if you want to fly from Chicago to Vail, say, and you want to do this in the summer, you have to fly to Denver, however you get to Denver, but then from Denver to Vail, you're flying a, a small little spoke regional, little regional jet um, on United, right? So this hub and spoke network system is part of, is, is an outcropping, it's a manifestation of learning of the diffuse private knowledge of both the airlines and the passengers because of what they want and how they want it. And the hub and spoke system is a manifestation of that. And they get higher capacity utilization, profits go up, blah, blah, blah. But, um, so I think that's a pretty good example. Um, I have a, what I think is a better example, and I'm personally biased in this because this is the area I work in, and it's a, a particular aspect of um, technology and market design called transactive energy. Right. So the idea is, um, you know, think about, think about your relationship with electric power. You're probably, unless you're me, you're probably a flip the switch and the light goes on and you don't really think about it other than paying your bill too much. Am I right there? Yeah. Okay. So, um, typically because of regulation we think of, you know, we pay a bill, but there is some underlying price, but it's regulated and it's usually fixed at all times during the day and across seasons. Um, and that worked, that I, I, will, I will even, even as a class, classical liberal, I will argue that that worked decently well in the 20th century and achieved the social, object, social policy objectives of universal electrification and service at um, affordable prices for everyone. But what do we have going on now? We have a whole lot of innovation in things like um, rooftop solar photovoltaics, so rooftop solar PV, um, electric vehicles, and all of these things can potentially, this is a you know, HVAC system, your air conditioner, a water heater, a battery, the battery technologies are really improving. We have tech, um, things like your Nest or Ecobee home thermostat that can be your home energy management system. All of these digital technologies that can enable you to control and determine and even automate what goes on in your energy consumption in your home. Uh, so this is a very different world from the past 110 years of electricity. And so one thing we can do, and this was, is from a research project that I did about a decade ago with the Pacific Northwest National Lab, is we tested with a, a focus group of 130 households for a year, we tested what would happen if we, um, homeowners have these two-way programmable thermostats and you can automate your response to price signals. Right? 
So what if instead of you're just paying the bill and you have no idea you know, about how much your energy consumption actually costs per unit and you only know something about that when you get the bill at the end of the month after you've done your consumption, how useful is that? Not. Um, what if instead you could get real-time information and the prices you pay are generated through a market process? Initially, you might be a little nervous about that, right? Because you're like, well, I don't know. Markets can be volatile. What if prices go really high and you know, I don't want to have to turn my air conditioning off when it's 95 degrees out? Um, one of the things that we can do is we can use technology to automate responses to price signals. And so what we did in, in, in this um, experiment, we had 130 households, and we divvied them up into four groups. One group was a control group that just had the thermostat, the two-way thermostat that we could send data to, but they didn't have anything else going on. The other three, we put them on different contracts. And in particular, I, I, I don't want to get into the details, except for in one case, and it's, it's the case that is illustrated here, in one, one of the, the treatment groups, we, um, uh, it was what we called the real-time price group. And so those households, they would get whatever the real-time price was in the wholesale market for electricity sent directly to them in real time. And um, what they will have done, and, and that's what, so this blue is a demand curve. And usually the demand for electricity is pretty inelastic. People don't respond a lot because we're not you know, habituated to it. But what this, what this kind of bend here, the downward slope, um, more elastic portion is, this is different people having their different thermostats that they set at different prices. Because then what you can do is you can program in your preferences into your thermostat. How much am I willing to pay? If the price goes from nine cents to 12 cents, then, you know, with air conditioning, then turn my thermostat up by five degrees. And so then that means I'm not gonna be paying that high price. Ha ha, that's pretty cool, right? So your thermostat is doing the work for you. And, uh, and so this is, we ran this as a double auction the way I just described. So this was our supply curve. And this is, say, a demand curve. And so here's our market clearing price. Any thermostat that said, I'm willing to pay a price higher than PC, any thermostat that said that their owner was willing to pay a price higher than PC got to keep their settings as they were. Any thermostats that were not willing to pay that price had to change their settings. And this is all automated, right? So you know, the homeowner is out like, having fun, living their lives. The thermostat is doing the work. Okay. That's pretty cool, right? Sure. So we did. We ran this double auction every five minutes for a year, oh. and um, the homeowners who were on this contract they saved twenty percent compared to what their bill would have been on a standard utility contract. Uh, so where's the epistemology in this, right? This is using a market to enable homeowners to reveal their preferences about their electricity consumption and choices. Right? To me, this is empowering. Right? And they save money. They, they didn't change how much electricity they consumed, so it didn't necessarily give us a conservation bump, but 
Um, you know, you can imagine that that might happen as well, and especially the more we have this stuff and this stuff. The more we have um, solar PV and electric vehicles, and people have very, um, you know, they make those investments because they have strong green preferences that they want to express, and being able to express them in a market is, I think, very powerful and empowering. And so this is a sense in which markets can aggregate the diffuse private knowledge that is the preferences of all of these individuals and give them some way to express that. Good. So does that make it, the idea of knowledge more concrete? Right? Okay, good. Because I know it can be really abstract and weird. Um, all right, so what about this contextual point? Um, not, only, not only is knowledge diffuse, it sometimes doesn't even exist until you're within a market process. Right, if you ask me right now, what's my willingness to pay for pizza? I'm just like, I have no idea. You know, I'm standing here having a conversation with you. I'm not thinking about eating pizza. But you put me in a situation where I'm hungry and I want lunch, you better believe I'll be able to assess my willingness to pay this much for pizza versus that much for a salad. Right? And so preferences really, and that knowledge are only really well formed within the market context itself. And in other words, knowledge is, is itself can be emergent. And that contributes to some of the kind of feedback effects that we were talking about yesterday. All right, so put these two things together. And this implies that markets, um, market processes are institutions, and markets are processes of social learning and experimentation, which I know I also said yesterday. This is the sense in which um, you know, the, the epistemology of markets matters. Markets are epistemic ecosystems. And I think that's a, a very new and different way to think about markets than the way you probably usually do. Why is this important? If you think about the way we usually do economics, where you say, okay, given a set of preferences for consumers and given a set of costs for producers, we're gonna have a demand curve and a supply curve and we're gonna put them together and get a market clearing price. Right? And that's how we usually think about economics. And we usually make assumptions that all of the parties here are pretty fully informed. Right? And so if we work with that model, um, we're gonna miss, we're gonna miss a lot of this, this aspect. Um, we're gonna miss this, the implications here from the complexity and, and context. Right? We're gonna miss a lot of the fact that different people will make different types of decisions in different contexts based on their knowledge of their own circumstances of time and place. Right. Um, not only that, knowledge can be inarticulate, as I mentioned, tacit knowledge. Deirdre mentioned Michael Polanyi yesterday, uh, so I'm gonna, he, he is the person to whom we owe this idea of tacit knowledge, that we, when we make decisions, we make use of knowledge that we don't even know we know. Um, and there's a difference between knowing how to do something and knowing that something happens. And this is, this is the bicycle riding, right? I know how to ride a bike. Um, I'm not sure that I know how it works, you know, the, the physics thing. But if I, you put me on it and I pedal, it works. Um, all right, I wanna get going because I'm running behind time. What are the implications of this? Why, why is this such a profound thing? Why am I getting so excited about, about this? <laughs> um, it's because it has very broad institutional implications, right? Um, 
if we think about the rules of the game that shape people's incentives, right, going back to that economic way of thinking and, and the fact that we respond to incentives, the institutional framework, right, the, the rules that we operate under interact with our preferences and our perception of our preferences to determine what we do and the choices we make and the interactions we have with other people. And that means that different institutions, different sets of rules can yield different types of outcomes. And this connects very deeply to, I mentioned experimental economics before. This is a big insight that we get from studying experimental economics and using it in our research. It's also, I would argue, an insight that we get from economic history. And economic history provides us with opportunities to study different institutional frameworks and what their consequences have been by studying people and firms and governments and all of their choices that they made within their own situations, their own circumstances of time and place. Um, so it's one of the reasons I think economic history is really important. Um, and of course, when we think about institutions, one of the objectives that we're trying to achieve is, is this, again, this kind of concept of order that we talked about yesterday, right? A, a, ple a pleasing and harmonious social order, as Adam Smith might say. Um, the, uh, and then I, I, um, the beautiful thing about doing this after talking about spontaneous order is I can say, and this is why, and this is why, and this is why. Um, and this is why I think the, the example of the common law and the idea of emergent institutions is so powerful and so important. Because what does it mean that if you have institutions that emerge over time, like, like common law, what it's doing is it's basically embedding all of this diffuse private knowledge that's been experienced over long, long periods of history. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that, that they will necessarily stand the test of time. Because of course, circumstances change, technologies change. Uh, preferences change, and as we talked about yesterday, our moral compasses even change. Um, but it does mean that, that, that if we take the knowledge aspects of markets seriously, that it gives us more, um, more of a reason to see the benefits of bottom-up processes. Because bottom-up institutions are the ones that are most likely to harness that diffuse private knowledge, that local knowledge. Uh, and, um, and this, I think, connects very well to a lot of evolutionary concepts that we talked about yesterday, like resilience. Um, I will add anti-fragile here uh, happily. Um, but if you try to plan or design institutions without thinking about this diffuse private knowledge, you're more than likely going to get it wrong. Right? And so that's, the, that's the, the argument. And for that reason, I think as classical liberals, we tend to make normative claims in favor of emergent institutions. Right? So for me, the, the knowledge, this, this epistemology of markets is part of the reason why I think the spontaneous order processes and emergent uh, institutions are, normatively speaking, superior to uh, top-down command and control. Um, but we can have bad spontaneous orders, as we talked about yesterday, and I mentioned Virgil Storr's work on that. Um, even emergent institutions that have stood the test of time can inform entrenched special interests, can get have status quo bias, 
And so just because we've got this underlying, you know, thinking about diffuse private knowledge means bottom-up emergent institutions are superior to top-down command control in general, it doesn't mean that they are immune from political economy, right? We still can have problems of lobbying, of special interests, of concentrated benefits and diffuse costs because we still have to interact with political processes. And, um, and so, uh, you know, but that's true for, for top-down command and control institutions as well, so we have to do the hard work of comparing the two to each other and, um, and that we wanna focus on finding institutions that do a better job of enabling this aggregation of diffuse private knowledge. For example, prices. So we're back to prices. Um, yeah, so I will stop there and say prices. <laughs> As a, prices are a signal wrapped, prices are an incentive wrapped in a, signal wrapped in an incentive. And that, that I think if you think about the knowledge aspects of markets, it gives you some new and different reasons to, to think about why market processes do what they do and do, them, do it so well. So I'll stop there. Thank you. All right, questions? The, uh, I wondered, you know, after listening to this, why is the, uh, maybe you could enlighten me, is why is the uh, concept of central planning so seductive, especially in the last 130 years or so? Um, I, 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 have, I have a few theories, and I, I suspect that a, a lot of people in the room probably also have theories. Um, where I'm gonna start the conversation, and I think we will probably, you know, pick up this theme uh, over, over drinks and, and dinner, I think there's a sort of deep evolutionary living in small groups, wanting to control your environment and to mitigate and to reduce potential risk. I think that <coughs> leads to a lot of what I think of as the command and control mindset. And so I think it's the it's and it's a it's a category error, right? It's and it's it's the category error that Hayek identified. It's the error of taking the desire to plan and control what's going on in your local context and thinking that you can embiggen it and imply it and apply it at the social level. And that is a fundamental error. But I think it's, it's kind of deeply baked in to us evolutionarily and that the past you know, 300 years of, of fairly liberal social orders is not enough in the broad sweep of evolutionary time to unpack that yet. Would you say generally that's true, Tom? Yeah. Jordan. You know, the, the knowledge problem extends in lots of areas, and in medicine, uh, something scary is happening. Uh, well, lots of things, but um, uh, one scary area relates to the um, uh, computers in medicine. Mm -hmm. We now have what's called electronic medical record, and it brings lots of uh, potential advantages. But one of the things that has happened is that um, orders and management of patients is becoming increasingly standardized through the use of uh, approved order sets that once in place um, don't change. And although you might be able to modify it, it's actually um, difficult and um, physicians are busy and, and they are people and sometimes lazy and you stick with the given order set. 
and um, all sorts of um, uh, knowledge issues don't come forward. Uh, you have one set way of doing things, and increasingly there are networks of hospitals that are all doing the same thing everywhere. So mm -hmm. there is a network of hospitals called Ascension and throughout Ascension, uh, which is you know from uh, throughout the country, uh, soon every physician there, when given a patient with pneumonia, will have the same order set to choose from and will order things more or less the same way. And if that happens to be the right way of doing it, that'd be great. And if it's the wrong way, it won't be so good, but we'll have no natural experiments uh, going on. Uh, people uh, who are of a certain age may remember uh, Legionnaire's disease. And before we knew what was causing Legionnaire's, we actually knew how to treat it because it was a natural experiment. You went to see your doctor, and depending on whether he gave you erythromycin or ampicillin and gentamicin, you either lived or died. Erythromycin patients survived. Uh, uh, in the modern era, uh, everybody would get the, um, uh, the same treatment. And I'm not quite sure how to um, uh, deal with that. It's been, you know, I've increasingly recognized this issue but have no, no way to capture data on how that's happening, uh, what's, what the downside consequences are. Right. I'm just certain that they exist. And it's because that's a bit of a like seen in the unseen Bastiat problem, right. right? Because you know that it's likely that you are missing some diagnoses because of the standardization of the procedure approach. Well, it's, it's right. less making the diagnosis and more affecting the treatment. treatment. So you okay. show up in the hospital, I think you've got a certain condition, my diagnosis may or may not be correct, but once I've chosen a, a, a treatment plan, it is hard to individualize that treatment plan for you. We used to treat it, treat you with a blank piece of paper and we wrote on it. It had all sorts of problems. You couldn't read my writing, you couldn't tell whether it was a zero or a, you know, what it was, and you missed the decimal point, you could get 50 instead of five. Um, you know, th those, are, those are important things and lots of good things have come from the standardized uh, approach on the other hand, this is very much a top-down command and control approach where a series of, uh, of uh, self-labeled or occasionally accepted experts nonetheless choose what the best approach is. Those best approaches, and that's in quotation marks, get um, uh, sent out to everybody, yeah. and, and that is what you will use. And there is remarkably less variation, which is good if there is no question about the best way to do it, right. but in, this also extends to areas of uncertainty. Do you think there's a way to achieve the benefits of the standardization of the approach while still leaving opportunities open to gather the more diverse knowledge? Well, there are lots of opportunities for natural experiments to occur, so you could compare people who are treating with one set of orders versus another. Yeah. Um, you could have orders that give you more opportunities to pick and choose as opposed to fewer opportunities to pick and choose. It's just, if you are a member of a top-down bureaucracy that views that as the right way, then it's antithetical to you to want to allow those experiments to occur. So the right. same people that were believers in command economies before are the same oh, people no. who believe in command approaches to um, healthcare and the idea of carrying out an experiment to see whether or not uh, the physician choosing from a set of reasonable choices as opposed to only allowing to use certain approved choices. Those are fundamentally very similar approaches, but if you're complete command and control, only one of those is acceptable to you. Mm. Yet, if you ran that experiment, you might actually get some interesting information about which is better. Mm. And uh, I'm not sure if, I haven't seen much written about that, uh, but it's anybody who practices medicine today and thinks about how that's working would recognize that issue.
Good, thank you. Well, not thank you in the broader scheme, but thank you for the comment. <laughs> That's super um, sobering. You yeah, said, hi, uh, hi. Hi. You said there are some institutions that, though inefficient, they persist due to cultural biases. The first thing is that I may think that it's not that they are inefficient, they are just inefficient by our, on our view. They value other things that make that yeah. th that uh, institutions persist. And I wanted to know if you have any example of an institution that we thought inefficient that sustained because of cultural biases and if there are way, there's a way to eliminate that institution and, and make it advance. Yeah, no, and, and you're right, I, I, I take your point exactly, that from the point of view of economic, the economic concept of efficiency, it can, institutions can persist beyond the point where it looks like they're efficient, but that there can be other, and, and I think that's one of the broader themes from a lot of the, the conversations we've had this weekend is um, that the economics is important, but that you know, people are uh, living their lives wanting to express and reflect other values as well. Okay. And the institutions, as they emerge and change over time, often will reflect those. So yeah, that's, I think what I had in mind when I said that is, is very much my context of working with electricity regulation, right? So, so an example um, that I would give is, is the persistence of public utility regulation uh, when technological change has made the way regulation has been, has been done for 110 years, um, technological change has now made that not, necess not necessarily the best way to govern what's going, you know, it's not the best form of regulation. And in particular, um, what has been happening in electricity, you know, it's, a, it's a, a vertically integrated supply chain. So you've got generation, you've got the high voltage wires down to the low voltage wires to the retail relationship with the customer, and then the customer flips the switch and the light goes on, right? And that retail relationship is increasingly competitive because digital technologies reduce transaction costs. The wholesale part with the generators, that's been competitive and we have organized wholesale power markets in areas in the US that cover about three quarters of the population. Right? So if you live in if you live in Illinois, well, if you live in pretty much anywhere except the Pacific Northwest or the Southeast, your electricity is coming from an independent power producer and being sold through a, a competitive wholesale power market. Um, but that means that, that the only part of that supply chain that still has the characteristics, the natural monopoly characteristics that made it regulated is the wires, hmm. right? But in the states, especially in the Southeast and the Pacific Northwest, the regulations still cover the whole vertical integration, the generation, the wires, the retail, it's all still bundled into one firm. And so I would argue that regulations footprint should shrink to match the wires, right? We should quarantine the monopoly. And um, so that's what I meant by, by kind of inefficient mismatch. Oh. As an, that's a good example. But I think your point, your broader point about, about culture and values is, is really important and very correct. Thank yeah. you. Uh, it's 
it seems that in medicine, I don't know if this is on. Could be on. Yep, there you go. Yeah. You're good. Uh, it seems that in medicine that the prices are and profits are not as knowledge surrogates as they could be. I look at the, you know, I, I look at hospitals yeah. and the fixed price of the instruments that we use in the hospitals are only used for eight to 10 hours a day, as opposed to having them, and the variable cost is very small yep. in terms of using them. So we don't seem to reflect it in terms of healthcare in so many different areas. Yeah. The other area is that in, you know, in terms of the bureaucracies and the middlemen in healthcare, as opposed to the caregivers, mm -hmm. have been dramatically decreased. And there has been a 20-time increase in the management costs and the intermediary costs. And the physician's costs, the only time the physician's costs go up significantly are when the physicians are employed by the hospitals. And then the physician goes, price goes up by 14 to 16%. So, I, I look at a system that mm -hmm. actually doesn't have anything coming from the yep. bottom up, but everything coming from the top down yep. and an entity that looks at the system and says, no, we can't make it any better. Do you, what is your feeling I, on that? I, well, so I, and it sounds like education, right? <laughs> yeah. Education is a lot of the same phenomena. I am eternally grateful that I don't study healthcare because it is so complicated. And everyone's like, but electricity, you know, the engineering and the, I'm like, it's, it's a piece of cake compared to healthcare. I mean, healthcare, to, it's su especially the way it's done in the US, it's such an epistemically starved system, right? Just starved by design. And, and it's, just, it's just staggering to me. I would love, love, love to see economists and healthcare policy people uh, whether it's whether it's the practices that, that you and Jordan have been discussing or the relationship, the third party payer problem, the insurance issues, to take some of this kind of you know market epistemology insights and framing and analyze what goes on. It's this, as if they totally know. ignore it. No, and and I think that's why when we see these, you know, these kind of massive changes, you don't like the you know the the ACA, you don't get the kind of results that people anticipate, and I think in part it's because they're not paying attention to this. Yeah. We got five minutes. Thank you. <laughs> Great, five minutes early. Cool. Thank you. Thank you.